This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Thursday, January the 18th, 2024. Good morning and welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians is calling for better access to emergency rooms. Dr. Bernard Ho explodes how, explores how Canada can alleviate crowding and shortage issues. You know that there is a rise in the popularity of artificial intelligence. Along with that has come a rise in AI relationships. But how does that impact human-to-human relationships? Kevin Shaw weighs in with his thoughts. And Samsung showed off a whole bunch of new stuff with their Galaxy Unpacked event yesterday. Marco Flalo takes a closer look. I've already had four cups of coffee this morning. It's a lot of caffeine coursing through my veins. Who knows if I make it through the entire show before I just fall over? or just begin shaking and require more caffeine. So everyone on alert around the building today, Dave may require an espresso injection. Let's begin the show with the top story of the day. The deadline for Canadian businesses to repay pandemic loans has arrived. Lisa Laporte explains. Hundreds of thousands of businesses and nonprofits received a Canada Emergency Business Account loan of up to $60,000 during the COVID-19 pandemic. Up to one-third of the loans could be forgiven if the outstanding amount was repaid by today. Otherwise, the debt will convert into a three-year loan with 5% annual interest. Businesses have the option to refinance the loan with a financial institution, but the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and Restaurants Restaurants Canada have been calling for another extension to the deadline. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says it's time to wrap up pandemic financial aid programs. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. Another story relating to federal politics, a report by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives shows millions of uninsured Canadians will be left out of the new federal dental program because their family income is too high. Laura Osmond takes a closer look. Enrollment began last month for a new federal benefits program which was developed as a condition of a political pact between the Liberal government and the NDP. It'll see the government offer dental benefits to uninsured families with a household income under $90,000 per year, starting with seniors, children under the age of 18, and people with disabilities. The report's author says when the program is fully implemented in 2025, 4.4 million people who don't have dental benefits of their own will be excluded because of the income gap. Laura Osmond, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. And one more story for you. Canada's financial intelligence agency is warning that money is being laundered through online gambling sites. John Kennedy has the story. 
In a newly published bulletin, the Financial Transactions and Reports Analysis Center of Canada says the popularity of online gambling grew during the COVID-19 pandemic and has been fueled by the 2021 legalization of single-event sports betting in Canada. FinTech identified an oft-used tactic which included the purchase of prepaid cards or vouchers using suspected proceeds of crime. They were then used to deposit money into gambling accounts, followed by withdrawals through wire or e-transfer into a Canadian bank account under the guise of winnings. John Kennedy, the Canadian Press. That's your look at the news. Here come the daily polls, starting with Wednesday's results, where on X and at Accessible Media and at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, you were asked about CES, where a whole bunch of new technology was shown off last week. And I asked you, what kind of technology makes you want to part with your hard-earned money? 43% of you said portable large screens. Only 14% of you said the tangle-free charging cord. 0% of you said keyboards for touchscreens. Little surprised about that one. Thought a tactile keyboard for touchscreen phones would... Uh, ruffle a few more of your feathers, but I guess not. And 43% of you said other. A couple very thoughtful responses here coming in on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Robin writes in, would invest in a Braille printer like that one. Brogan writes in, says they recently bought a 3D printer. You can make anything you want. I like that one. Tony chimes in, other. A Roger on microphone will set me back about 13 hundred dollars oh man that is a pricey microphone i don't even know if our microphones are uh, that expensive around uh, ami hq a roger on microphone i'm gonna have to google that after the show find out about that today's daily poll will be explored more thoroughly later in the show about media representation of disability when comedian Nick Thielen stops by, but seems like a good opportunity to start the conversation here with Alex Smythe and Laura Bain. The question at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, do you feel the representation of disability in mass media is improving? Yes or no? Laura Bain, I'll put my cards on the table here on the front end. I do think that it's getting better. I do think that it's improving. And I think there are a bunch of shows that have debuted in the last six to 10 months that are really the evidence of that. Major networks, major streamers, major studios, actors, writers, producers with disabilities. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'll be interested to hear uh, the counter argument for folks who might say no. Um, you know, I've really noticed a shift just even within the last two or three years in terms of portrayal. Uh, you know, you and I have recently talked about some shows, All the Light We Cannot See, Echo, mm -hmm. where the studios kind of went to these lengths, like you're speaking about, to cast authentically. Now, that is more difficult and costly for them than just casting an able-bodied character. So the reason that they're doing this, apart from from, you know, a cultural shift is, you know, because there's pressure, like shows will get called out if they cast an able-bodied character at this point. Um, you know, and I, I also see the evidence of this uh, because I'm on some different lists to get casting calls for people with disabilities. I actually auditioned last year to play a cartoon character with oh, a disability. Cool. So even, and that was, uh, that was for CBC. So even, I didn't get the part by the way, but which was appropriate because it was to, to, to the character was a five-year-old girl and they did actually cast a, um, child in that role, which was uh, more appropriate than me. But, you know, even there, um, there's an understanding that it needs to be authentic. And, you know, as you mentioned, uh, also opportunities for disabled creators, which I think we can kind of put in a bit of a separate basket from those um, 
you know, kind of casting calls where yeah, we have DJ yeah. Demers and Ryan O'Connell was special, which I mentioned the other day. So I absolutely think it's improving. There's just been such a long way to go that, of course, it's not overnight. It's not going to be perfect, but it is improving. And I think we have ourselves to thank for this, not not the big companies. They are coming on board, but it's been the advocates in the community that yeah. are driving the change. Tireless, tireless, right? It went from advocacy to consultant to creator to star. And I'm not ready this morning, Alex Smythe, to plant a flag of victory, right? Because there's still all kinds of problematic stuff out there that exists. But I think that if I were to express optimism this morning, and that's what I'm trying to do here, yes, I do think it's improving. Uh, yeah, hands down, it is definitely improving because, I mean, these are conversations that all of us have had for over you know, a decade, a over a decade, decade on, yeah, the, on these airwaves. Even, even us ourselves over like close to a decade, you know, that we're, we've been talking about this. So I, I think the big thing that I've noticed that shows a real sign of progress, it's not just the casting, it's not just the authentic, uh, you know, um, uh, voices within the creative process, whether it's in front of the camera or behind the camera. It comes down to the promotion of the shows yeah, and the yeah. films. I mean, you can't turn anywhere without seeing promotions for Sight Unseen that's going to be airing in a, a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, even one more time, the new DJ Demare show, I saw a bunch of advertisements coming up across all different platforms leading up to his, uh, to the debut. So it's, it's things like that, all the light you cannot see. You can go anywhere without talking about it. These are all programs that feature authentic representation in major roles, both in front and behind the camera. That is huge. So it's not just, okay, we're giving a space and a platform for people to uh, be creative and share uh, unique stories, but we're also promoting it as a a big uh, uh, kind of media company that we're, we're pushing these forwards. As a broadcaster, we are taking our airtime and promoting this just like we would any other show. The word I've been mm -hmm. using a lot around here lately, Alex, is platforming, platforming, yeah. platforming. It's not telling a story or celebrating a story. It's platforming a story. And I think that's a big deal. And I don't need an answer from either of you two to this question right now, but I want to pose it to you two. I want to pose it to people in listener land and the viewer vortex. If we feel like perhaps we've gotten to step one, Right again, not declaring victory, but maybe now the understanding of authentic casting and authentic creation is there. What's the next step? What's the next battle? What's the next hurdle? So you guys don't need to answer that now. You guys can walk away with that and take your time. Same thing for you guys in listener land and the viewer vortex. But I think about that. What is the next step? Certainly not stopping this battle for step one, but how does that serve as a foundation to get to step two, step three, step four, step five, and keep the ball moving forward? What is the next barrier? So think about that. I want you to consider that. I also want you to vote on today's poll. Think about today and think about tomorrow when you stop by on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. And when you pop by on X at Accessible Media, you can also chime in via email feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone. 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545.
Coming up after the break, the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians is calling for better access to emergency rooms. There are so many ERs across the country operating at over 100% capacity. Dr. Bernard Ho will explore how Canada can alleviate some of these crowding and shortage issues. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca. back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Emergency rooms across the country are experiencing significant strain. The province of Quebec's ERs have been operating at over 100% capacity since November. It's a very similar number in British Columbia and plenty of other provinces are dealing with overcrowding and sometimes even ER closures. The Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians has asked governments, hospital workers, unions, to work together for better access to care. Dr. Bernard Ho has some more insight to offer. Dr. Ho is an emergency physician at the University of Toronto. Dr. Ho, thank you so much for making time to be on the show today. I'm grateful for your perspective. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. It's almost such a big issue that it's hard to know where to start, but what are the key challenges facing ERs right now? Yeah, so the major challenges that, that we see in our emergency departments are an issue of overcrowding. Uh, and, a, and a shortage of, of frontline workers um, that are happening concurrently. And in particular, the challenges with overcrowding have been a, a slowly evolving issue within our emerges for, for decades. But, but as I'm sure you've heard many times before, the pandemic exacerbated these cracks in our healthcare system and really brought them to light. There's this, this myth that, that the long wait times and the overcrowded emergency departments are caused by patients coming in with simple issues or, or non-emergent concerns, but the evidence shows that, that that isn't actually the case. We actually have an outflow issue in our, in our EDs, meaning the, the bottleneck is actually admitted patients waiting for an acute care bed on the wards or in the ICU or alternate level of care patients waiting to be discharged to a nursing home or a long-term care home and who are unfortunately are, are stuck in the hospital. And part of the reason is the, the shortage of frontline workers that we've seen uh, since the start of the pandemic. Uh, there's so much to unpack, even from that one answer, but I wanna, I wanna read between the lines a little bit there. How much does a snowballing effect take place here, where once there's a snag, the snag just backs up and backs up and backs up? Yeah, that's sort of the, the, the crux of the issue. This has been a, a slow snowball effect for decades, that, and, and um, our organization has been, has been calling uh, for changes for that for years. But really, again, the pandemic has exacerbated that snowball effect. We've seen issues with lack of hospital beds, with an aging population and, and with uh, difficulties in vulnerable communities, and that has all exacerbated these uh, the problems that we're seeing today. You know, more people than ever are going to the emergency department for care, again, because of the aging population and because we've seen a steep increase in mental health and addictions issues since the start of the pandemic. And it also means that uh, that paramedics are often waiting hours in our emergency departments, uh, waiting to offload their patients to a hospital bed, which leads to a decrease in the number of available ambulances to answer calls in the community. So all of this leads to prolonged wait times, 
uh, delays in hospitalizations, and ultimately compromised patient care. You know, there have been instances where I've come onto a ship and I've seen, you know, 10 paramedics waiting in the hallway. The other part of this is that our, our physicians and nurses are really feeling the effects of these challenges, and it's leading to significant moral injury and, and workforce burnout. You know, we're trained in emergency medicine in identifying life-threatening conditions and treating them. And that's the hat that we're supposed to wear. But in the last few years, we've been forced to put on so many other hats, uh, a family physician hat, a psychiatrist hat, a social worker hat, a geriatrician hat. And it's simply because there aren't enough resources or frontline workers in the community. You mentioned some of the burnout that's going on. Uh, there was a report out of Ontario a few weeks ago about workers dreading going to work. I, I, obviously, within the context of that number, it tells the story. But what, what is the experience and what is the impact in terms of the workforce and the number of people willing to take on such an important role when the conditions on the ground are so rough? Yeah, I mean, we've unfortunately seen a, a mass exodus of experienced nurses from our emergency departments since the start of the pandemic for, for many reasons. I think at the core of it, our nurses have felt undervalued and unsupported by, by their provincial and federal governments and, you know, put in unsafe working conditions. And we've seen an alarming rise in violence in the eMERGE. And unfortunately, nurses take the brunt of that. And so the staffing shortages that result from that lead to a domino effect of emergency department closures, uh, reduced access to care, increased burden on the remaining nurses, and ultimately decreased patient safety. But I really, I think in order to address this, most importantly, we need to work on, on retaining our most experienced nurses. A lot of departments are focusing on hiring new, newly graduated nurses, which that, that is a great step, but unfortunately they can't replace the experience and you know, the wisdom of seasoned nurse. You know, they still need to be oriented and, and supervised before they can independently care for our sickest patients. So we really need our governments to acknowledge the essential role that nurses have and provide wages and benefits that are commensurate with their contributions to the health of all Canadians. Um, I'd also like to see an increased focus on addressing burnout and mental health in our frontline workers and, and more support for our staff to prevent violence in the workplace. I was going to ask what could be done to offer better retention for the people who are doing this important work on the grounds, because fundamentally that goes back to sort of the snowball effect or the vicious cycle. If conditions are bad and people want to leave, it just again snowballs the crisis and snowballs the crisis. So maybe reiterate there, what are some of the things that can be done to alleviate staff retention and how that would, how that would end up influencing the system positively moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I just want to emphasize that again, the, the snowball crisis. When we have one, two, three seasoned nurses leaving our emergency departments, it, it causes a significant effect on, on the emergency department as a whole. It, it leads to an increased burden on the rest of the remaining nurses, and it's a huge hole to fill. And so, again, we really need our governments to, to acknowledge these the contributions that these nurses have had over the past decades. And again, we need them to provide um, benefits and wages that, that align with how much they've, they've put into the, their, their job and their careers and how much they've been able to help Canadians over the past you know, many years. Um, is, it's essential for, the, for helping to alleviate the crisis that we're seeing currently. Quebec's health minister, Christian Dubé, a few weeks ago said, stop coming to the hospital, go, go to a CLSC, go to a clinic. What's your reaction to politicians putting that line of thinking forward? 
Yeah, you know, I, I, I appreciate that that they're trying, um, you know, unconventional methods to to try and fix the crisis. But I, I think that's the wrong approach to take. You know, it, it's the patients who really are the ones that to declare their own emergency. And our job in the emergency department is to make sure that whatever symptoms they're coming in with, you know, if whether it's chest pain or abdominal pain, isn't actually a life threatening condition. So. Or the patients who are coming in with chest pain, are they actually having a heart attack or is it more so, um, you know, indigestion or, or something uh, more, thankfully, more minor? Um, and so I, I don't think we should be telling patients not to come into the emergency departments if, if they don't feel like they need it. You know, that's the whole point of the emergency departments, that we're open 24-7, we're always there if you need it, and, you know, we're the ones who will, who will help you decide whether or not the symptoms you're experiencing are actually dangerous. Several provinces have suggested moving to a more private clinic model uh, that has uh, received uh, some praise and some backlash. What's your reaction to provinces thinking about more of these private clinic models? Yeah, the, I mean, the evidence doesn't really support the use of private for-profit clinics as a, as a method of alleviating the burdens that we're seeing in our healthcare system. There are many different innovations that we can use within our public healthcare system to, to fix the, the crisis that we're seeing. Um, things like centralized referral systems, um, multidisciplinary teams. Um, and if you look again at the, the, the years and decades of evidence, it doesn't really support the use of, of these private clinics. Dr. Ho, I'm so grateful for the perspective that you were able to offer on this important issue this morning. I'd love to catch up with you again down the road, but in the meantime, please keep up the excellent work. Thanks so much again for having me, Dave. That is Dr. Bernard Ho, an emergency physician at the University of Toronto. Coming up next, you are well aware in the rise of artificial intelligence, and there's been a rise in popularity of AI relationships, human-to-computer relationships. But what's the bigger impact on human-to-human -human relationships? Kevin Shaw weighs in with his thoughts. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca. Artificial intelligence, AI, has been the buzzword in technology for over a year, sometimes to my chagrin. <laughs> One area that has become quite interesting, though, is the rise in AI relationships. Maybe trying to have a casual conversation with ChatGPT until it rejects you. Kevin Shaw has thoughts on the impact AI can have on the way that humans connect with each other. Kevin is the host of Mind Your Own Business on AMI-tv. Hey, good morning, Kevin. Morning, Dave. Kevin, I was rebuffed by ChatGPT. I was trying to have a casual conversation, and it said, ah, I don't want to have this conversation. And once again, Dave Brown was left rejected all by himself. Uh, Kevin, why did you want to bring this topic to the table today? Well, I, I read an interesting article in Zero Hedge uh, called The Rise of AI Girlfriends. And I'm like, the what? <laughs> um, and so I, I read this article and it, and it talked about how um, all these different sites have popped up using uh, what are called large language models that, that um, is basically what ChatGPT uses, but they're tuned 
to give you the experience of talking to a friend or a companion or a you know uh you know somebody that you might know on a more romantic level and um i i was just fascinated i i went and looked uh, at some of these services and they're they're growing like crazy um and it's it's really interesting i i you know i tried one of them out and it asked you about your day and and um you know you can engage in in a very casual conversation the, the, the way that you would with a friend and i'd say that the that the interaction is about 90% the way there in terms of convincing mm. you that you're actually talking to a human being. Kevin, you and I are old enough that we probably spent some time in chat rooms or message boards in the early yep. days of the internet and ended up forming digital friendships with people. Yep. Yep. I'm, I'm, yep. I'm kind of curious if this might just be the extension of that, that we're already so comfortable engaging in a digital relationship with people that that if it's a robot, you know, what's the big difference? Right. You know what it reminds me of? And you're a, you're a 90s kid, so you probably remember. Um, remember Tamagotchis? I do. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of like that. It's, you know, not a real person, but it's demanding your time and demanding your attention and demanding your emotions, which is the, uh, you know, I think the real danger here is that these algorithms and these... Uh, uh, large language models really know how to manipulate your emotions. That's where I think the rubber hits the road here as well. Totally. Because there is an impact on the increased anonymization of our relationship with the internet and the breaking down of community and human relationships. And every step in that direction has to come with a red flag. For sure. And, and so, you know, let me just go through the steps here because I, I think this is an interesting progression. You've got the first level, which is the sort of the chat GPT level where you can type and get a response back. Um, I think this, this, the second level now that they've got is that you can basically customize the avatar that, that is going to look 100% real. Um, and, uh, you know, that avatar can move around and interact and do the things you say. Uh, now they've got the technology to model a voice that sounds like a real voice mm. you know dave you won't even have to do promos anymore you could just uh, <laughs> have my ai model do my my promos for me um and and so now you've got now you've got these sort of three levels up the fourth level i think is going to be where where this goes into the vr space and you can put on an oculus or some other kind of vr headset the fifth level is where they will have this technology in AR space. And so now your digital friend can hang out in your living room with you and and comment on and watch TV with you. And and then the final level is um is robots. And yeah. uh, I saw a quick demo of of one of these robots at, at CES and um you know this is not this is not Alex on a Mac or Siri or Alexa type voice. This is this is a real voice coming out of a real robot, and um, you know I, I think we're 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 well on our way to having you know completely artificial relationships. Kevin, I think you missed a step there. It's when the uh, AR or VR headset gets combined with some sort of haptic suit that you can wear to create actual yep. like physical sensation on your body. Yeah, and uh, it's my understanding, <laughs> not that I want to reveal too much, that some of that already kind of exists. The tech companies already yep. thinking about that because uh, one of the weird things in technology is that where sort of the sex industry goes always tends to be kind of a step ahead of the rest of the industry. Oh, uh, it's it's why VHS beat out uh, Betamax. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
remember that. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Maybe we should leave that one aside. Maybe maybe we're revealing, <laughs> revealing too much information here. But Kevin, like, there there has to be a flip side to this, right? Because there is an appeal to the idea of individuals maybe developing these relationships, and I, I mean, there has to be. I'm, I'm struggling to find one, but I do think about people who might have either social anxieties or other social cues. I, th- like, there has to be some kind of flip side to this, because I don't want to sit here today and say, like, the rise of AI and the rise of robots and the rise of a digital relationship is inherently a terrible thing. I think it could be a really great tool for for folks, like you said, who, who maybe have anxiety or who might be, um, you know, experiencing autism or depression. But the... Uh, you know, the, the the coaching needs to be a part of it, right? So, you know, you, you walk into a digital bar and you go and you pick up a digital girl and maybe you've got a little thing that taps you and says, hey, that's not how you talk to a lady. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and, 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 and maybe gamifies the whole thing so that you kind of develop those social skills and, and can actually interact in a, you know, in a, in a proper way in society, um, you know, and, and hopefully... You know, give you some cultural refinement along the way, but I, I think that there is some potential here for for helping people who might struggle with with mental health. Um, and and so you know the the technologies out there. I, I think there was a um, a website called Replica AI that that is doing something like this. That's doing uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and sort of combining that with um, with these sort of AI chatbots, which is which is a really interesting approach. Kevin, I think that is one of the things in these conversations around artificial intelligence more broadly that people are trying to figure out the guardrails here, right? That even if there's an inherent badness and an inherent goodness to this, it's about establishing the guardrails and the lines and understanding what are the possible impacts happening to people if they maybe wander down this pathway too far. Well, you're you're absolutely right. There, there 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 has to be an ethical conversation that happens here. I'm I'm sure that somebody out there who is you know going into disability studies is going to write a thesis on the fact that you can go and customize these avatars, and I'm sure that none of you know none of them are going to have disabilities. So that's an interesting um, academic exercise there. But but you know back to the point about ethics. You know, these technologies, I think, need to be developed responsibly. And fortunately, I think the horses left the barn. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're way down the primrose path here in terms of um, uh, how this technology is going to be used. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely think that there are going to be some legal and some moral implications here for, for us to take a look at as a society. Yeah, it simultaneously happened slow and really fast. Because I've been talking about AI in earnest since about 2017, but it really yeah. felt like in 2023, oh boy, here it comes. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the kind of stuff that we were dealing with, I mean, they've had these sort of, you know, AI girlfriends, AI boyfriends since, uh, you know, the mid-2010s. And that was sort of the kindergarten of where the technology is going. Now, I, I think we're sort of in the we're sort of in the fifth or sixth grade um, and, uh, you know, just about to hit Puberty. adolescence. And, um, <laughs> you know, the, I, I think the technology is just going to, you know, the pace of increase of this technology is just going to uh, just going to go nuts in the next couple of years. Um, and, you know, two years from now, who knows, you, you might be talking to digital Kevin. 
Kevin. I hope not. <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I hope that no one's creating <laughs> me, so one yeah. of me is bad enough. That came up yesterday talking about AI with uh, Jenny Bovard and Megan Gilmore. We're talking about Jenny Robard uh, becoming the new robot Jenny on the Low Vision Moments podcast. Uh, speaking <laughs> of AMI shoulder programming, Kevin, Mind Your Own Business is back for season three. How are you feeling about yes. the new season? Uh, I love it. We, we're, we've done uh, three episodes so far that, that have gone out. I'm really proud of the work that we've done. Uh, we've got some. We've got new mentors this year, and uh, uh, I'm hosting the show solo, so that's uh, that's new. Uh, and we've got a great crop of entrepreneurs, um, and uh, I think I think people are really going to like it. So if you haven't seen it yet, amiplus.ca to catch up. Oh, look at this! Doing the plug right for me there, Kevin. Thanks for this, man. Have a great day. Thanks, Dave. That's Kevin Shaw. He's the host of Mind Your Own Business. Like Kevin said, Mind Your Own Business tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. And if you've missed any, amiplus.ca, amiplus.ca. Coming up in 60 seconds, Alex Smythe has the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your Morning Business Minutes. It was another big down day for Bay Street, while Wall Street also saw a decline. Toronto's S&P TSX losing 253 points to close at 20,695. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average slipped 94 points down to 37,267, while the Nasdaq fell 89 points to close at 14,856. Asian markets were mixed this Thursday morning with Japan's Nikkei mostly flat, dropping just 12 points to 35,466. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong, it closed up 115 points at 15,392. An expert in the Canadian competition field says Loblaw's move to reduce discounts on foods nearing their best before date is normal practice in the industry and not a sign of collusion. And electricity grids in Canada, according to experts, are increasingly coming under pressure during extreme weather conditions. As for the loonie, it's trading this morning at 74.07 cents US. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. I love that line from Rob there. By the way, totally fair attributional reporting. Hey, industry experts say uh, Loblaw is deciding to uh, end their practice to 50% off and moving to 30% off. That's not collusion, it's industry practice. But if you sort of follow the logical wheel, is the industry practice collusion? And my lawyer is on line two, so let's bring in Alex Smythe for the weather story of the day. Alex, my lawyer is not gonna like that one. Uh, you've been focusing on the West Coast and the prairies pretty much all week, but today your eyes are on the Atlantic provinces. Yeah, Dave, absolutely. You know, it's time we, we uh, pay some attention to what's happening on the other side of the country because out in Newfoundland, they too are experiencing a blast of winter weather. So a band of sea effect uh, snow is making its way through the island today and early tomorrow. So this is going to be coupled with strong winds, which is going to result in really kind of blizzard-like conditions on parts of the island. So upwards of 50 centimeters of snow is expected to hit the hardest hit areas which is going to be the western side of of the island so places like Porto Bass, Corner Brook and the northern peninsula those are the areas that could see those 50 centimeter uh, snows when the storm passes through by tomorrow now there is also going to be another band of snow that is expected to hit the southern portion of the island it will be less severe but could still bring upwards of 30 centimeters of snow when all 
said and done. And as I mentioned, there are strong winds. There's going to be wind gusts upwards of 100 kilometers per hour. So you couple that with the snow, it's going to mean it's going to be very cold. So it could be between minus 10, minus 20 once you factor in the wind chill, plus the snow, uh, plus just the windy conditions overall. It's going to be uh, rough uh, kind of commute home so it, people are advised make alternative arrangements make alternative plans be flexible so don't, because there don't could go be, to work is that the real advice don't, don't go, go to work yeah exactly if you can work from home work from home do things like that because it could be potentially whiteout conditions in parts of the the province and the island because when you're factoring the snow and the wind and everything it's going to be a really tough uh, day for commuting today and into tomorrow back in the day when i was a traffic reporter on cbc radio i used to tell listeners hey call in and I'll write you a note not to come into work today. And a few people would take me up on it, and then their bosses would email me and be like, stop saying that on the air, Dave. You're ruining our business. And I'm like, I'm a traffic reporter. I have no authority. They should know that. They should know that. Another note here, Alex. In January of 2020, there was a massive blizzard in Newfoundland and Labrador, and Kim Thistle stopped by to talk about her experience, and she told me about a practice they have, and there's a name for it in Newfoundland and Labrador, Storm Chips. You got to make sure to go to the grocery store and stock up on storm chips, not snacks, not storm snacks, not food and non-perishables, storm chips. Got to have enough storm chips. And that was the day I fell in love a little bit with Newfoundland and Labrador and Kim Thistle. Alex, thank you for this. Talk to you a little bit later in the show. Sounds good, Dave. Alex is going to go stock up on storm ships, a little run to the dip and urge in case it uh, snows in Burlington. Coming up next, there are a whole bunch of disability-focused television shows to talk about. That's the topic of the Daily Poll today. But comedian Nick Thielen will offer a little bit of perspective on these shows as well. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. A reminder about the Daily Poll at Accessible Media on X at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You're being all asked about disability representation in the media. Do you feel that it's getting better? Authentic representation in media and TV has been a topic of conversation for years, and it appears there's been some progress, but it's worth exploring and diving into. And comedian Nick Thielen has some thoughts on some shows that have popped up and the idea more broadly. And Nick is a comedian based in Alberta. Hey, Nick, good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning, Dave. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, you're right. I did uh, spend some time uh, looking into the disability representation on different shows because, as you guys mentioned, the weather has been well, it's better now, but it was pretty crazy <laughs> here over the last few weeks. So I stayed inside and watched some shows and... Uh, and uh, yeah, I kind of went. Just thought it'd be nice to talk about disability representation in, uh, in yeah. these different shows. Yeah, it's 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 a topic that certainly has its importance, and it's one that's top of mind on the show. But Nick, mm -hmm. almost starting with the baseline of the daily poll, do you feel mm -hmm. like it's gotten better? Yeah, I do. I think that a lot more um, authentic people with disabilities are being shown uh, on camera. I think they're um being given lead roles in uh the shows and also um 
behind behind the uh, behind the screen, I can say for myself that I was involved in uh, season two of Push as a as a director trainee, and uh, that that's the first television show in Canada to have like a, a major lead cast, all with people with disabilities, and uh, to to be a part of that was you know amazing. Um, I think it's definitely uh, getting a lot better. I think there's definitely ways we can uh, still probably improve because as I've seen with some of these shows, there's also times where people that don't have disabilities are playing um, roles, for example, with uh, atypical of uh, someone with, um, uh, with autism. And so I, I do think there is uh, still areas to improve on but as I mentioned you know that was the uh, they got some not so great feedback for the first season talking about the, that they wanted to have more autistic representation and so in the later seasons seasons two and three there is a, a support group that they create for the character Sam and those people that, uh, have autism and, and then the writers involved were we're also uh, autistic and more input was given that way. So it was, you know, it's nice to see that that is growing. You mentioned Push, which of course is a show that airs on AMI-TV Mondays at 9 p.m. Eastern time and uh, season two actually coming back March 18th at 9 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV and of course AMIplus.ca. Got to get those plugs in there, uh, Nick. Now, one of the things about Push that I really like and admire is that it's real and it's funny. And I think that's something that if you look across Push, one more time with DJ Demers, I suppose atypical to a certain degree, they're really trying to live in that comedic aspect or trying to find the humor. Why do you think the disability and humor intersection is one that's becoming I'm going to say becoming better because because I think for maybe the better part of the mid aughts through to the mid teens, there was sort of the sense of like, mm, don't make disability jokes. Why do you think disability and comedy are starting to intersect themselves in a more fluid, efficient, authentic way? Um, I think because uh, um, disability is often, you know, something that or like at least uh in, in the past, it, it was something that was looked uh, something that wasn't talked about, and I think that often we use humor to sort of uh, break the ice on a lot of tough subjects. And so, um, you know, I think, for example, like you were talking about uh, push, and so a lot of a lot of things uh, happen in the in the season for where they, for example, go uh, go they do they do two separate camping trips. Trips, one that's a little bit more modern and one that is a little bit more outback and wilderness. And so you see, you sort of have, you know, authentic comedic moments in there. And then also just you see the character growth themselves. And then um, when we're talking about a show like Louder Milk, which is, I will say it's a it's a mature show, uh, but it it does um so it does have a lot of like adult content because the um the main concept of the show is that the uh, lead of the show Sam is a uh, sort of the um, he leads a group of people that are recovering addicts basically and so uh, but this does include uh, a Matt Fraser who is uh, someone who 
has uh, like a thalidomide from uh, taking that medicine in the 50s and 60s, a condition called prochamelia. And so, um, you know, he definitely, there's two particular episodes, one in which because his character Roger plays the drums, uh, his, his band is asked to be a part of an ad and sort of sell out uh, to to make some money. Um, and they think initially that, you know, it's going to look bad on TV, but he decides to show them what he can do and then sort of back out of it and say, hey, I'm not going to just, you know, be a, you know, be, be a guinea pig to, uh, you know, make you guys money, I guess. And then there also is a, a great episode later on in season three uh, where they talk about uh, uh, inspiration porn and the idea of of that and sort of do a, a nice uh, tribute to Stella Young, who who was the person who coined that phrase initially. Mm. Um, so yeah, they're definitely, and, and you know, especially when you talk about addiction and those sorts of things, those are definitely hard topics to talk about. So in that show as well, you have a lot of comedy and uh, Brian Regan, who is one of the greatest uh, clean comics working right now, I think uh, is, plays uh, Muggsy on the show. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of great comedic people on that show, but also when there's these heartfelt stories and comedy in that really sort of makes you root for the, for the act for the uh, people on the show. So that's Loudermilk on Netflix. You've uh, mentioned Push. You've mentioned Atypical. Atypical is also available on Netflix. Let's wrap up with one more time, the new comedic series that's available on uh, AMI-TV starring DJ Demers, friend of the network, friend of the show, great comedian, gotten a lot of buzz. What's your early thought on uh, One More Time with DJ? Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, it was, it, It's a great cast. Uh, I've had the opportunity to actually work a few times on stage with uh, Marito Lopez, who plays sort of the, uh, um, I guess, the owner of the opposite, uh, and like a sports store. And uh, so it was really cool to see him. And I uh, really in enjoyed it. I like how uh, they, um, I, I think I like how they focus, I, I think how they, they bring attention to his, um, his hard of hearing, but they don't make it like the focus of the show. And there's only two episodes out so far, but uh, I, I'm i interested to see how the characters develop. Um, I don't want to <laughs> ruin it for, uh, there was a, uh, in episode two, I was a little bit, you know, a little bit grossed out with some of the things that happened, but it was very funny, I think. And, and they're doing a, a good job with the show. Um, I, so I've really enjoyed what I've seen with it so far. One more time, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV. And don't forget, you can also find it at amiplusa.ca. You can find uh, Nick Thielen in Alberta. Nick, have a great day. Talk to you later, man. Thank you so much, Dave. Have a good day. Nick Thielen is a comedian based in Alberta. In one minute, the entertainment conversation continues with Laura Bain. But first, Samsung is showing off a new line of cell phones. Mike Dubusky has more in Tech Trends. News Tech Trends. Samsung is going all in on artificial intelligence with its latest smartphones, which were unveiled Wednesday at the brand's Galaxy Unpacked event. Welcome to Unpacked. 
one may be hard-pressed to spot the differences between last year's Galaxy S23 phones and the new S24 lineup. This is one of the most iterative years ever as far as hardware goes for Samsung. But Android authorities C. Scott Brown says the real changes are to the phone's software, which now comes with an assortment of AI features. It allows you to like circle a thing in a photo that you've taken and then move that thing out of the photo, delete it from the photo, and then use generative AI to fill in the gap that was left there. And it's not just photos getting the AI treatment. It basically allows you to have a, a phone conversation with someone and automatically translate what the other person is saying, regardless of what language they're speaking. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. And in about 20 minutes, Mark Aflalo of Access Tech Live will go a bit deeper into the Samsung Unpacked event. He'll unpack, unpacked. Turning back to the world of entertainment, the Coachella Music Festival has unveiled their 2024 lineup. Laura Bain, it's my annual reminder that I'm getting older and older and older and more and more out of touch. <laughs> I'm with you there, Dave. So uh, the headliners they've announced for this year are Lana Del Rey, Tyler, the creator, and Doja Cat. I Ooh, think Lana Del Rey I know, is... I know, I know all three of them. Okay, I, I knew two of them, so <laughs> we're doing good here. Um, now, there are um, there are going to be some Canadian acts in the lineup. Nav, A.P. Dillon, Grimes, and Blondish. Um, and all but A.P. Dillon have performed at Coachella before. Now, I thought maybe I had not heard of A.P. Dillon, and I will say I hadn't heard of Blondish, and I don't know if I'm saying that right, actually, because it has a colon in the middle of the name. Um, so people who know out there can be laughing at me. But um, I, I looked up A.P. Dillon and realized that I had heard his music before on, like, different playlists that I put on when I'm cooking or whatever and just don't always look at the artist's name. Uh, but he's got kind of a cool story. He's an artist who from India to Canada to pursue his music career about a decade ago and it's really working out well for him. He sung at the Junos last year in Punjabi. He was the first artist to ever sing in Punjabi at that show. Uh, so I thought we could give a listen to a little bit of his song Summer High which I believe we have a clip of. <laughs> That's definitely a song you can dance to, or at least I can. <laughs> it has that modern vibe to it. it tell, you can really feel where like that modern hip-hop influence combines with his own cultural styling. Really like it. Really like it. Yeah, I just, I really like seeing songs on like mainstream kind of new music playlists that are not in English. And it just speaks to kind of the multiculturalism uh, in Canada. But uh, yeah, you know, Coachella is really known for featuring a mix of established and emerging artists. There were dozens on the list that was out yesterday. Uh, definitely did not know all of them, but these were a few that jumped out at me. So no doubt of, you know, how we all came to know Gwen Stefani, they will be reuniting just for Coachella to play a show. Uh, so that'd be kind of cool. Probably hear some stuff off of Tragic Kingdom, I'm guessing. Uh, also, the band Blur will be performing. Ooh. Now, that's not like a... Uh, they actually reunited uh, earlier this year, and they put out an album about six months ago. So might be hearing some tracks off of that album, but that one should get the mosh pit going, I'm thinking. Well, certainly when they play song two. Woohoo! That's what I had in mind, yep. Um, other artists that stood out for me were Brittany Howard. I think she's really... Uh, really talented and Deftones uh, kind of an alt metal band that I 
haven't thought of in at least a decade, but yeah, I was really into them. So I would, I'd be excited to see them. Considering, considering one of their big songs was considered, I, uh, changes. I watched you change. I wonder how they've changed in the last 25 years. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that. That is an interesting (laughs) question. Um, a little more dad rock vibes, perhaps. Um, one more that I just wanted to mention to you, uh, because you might have feelings on this is sublime will be playing, uh, now not sublime with Rome, but sublime. Uh, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but they actually have taken on Bradley Knowles son, Jacob this year as their front man. Yeah. I've seen a couple clips on social media. I've seen a few clips on social media. I, um, Oh, I'm so conflicted because obviously it's Bradley's son and, and Bradley tragically passed away of an overdose mm-hmm. the, the day before their big record dropped. Yep. And I saw them when they were together with Rome, uh, when they were that composition and it was a really, really good show. And and then I, I saw this clip floating on social of Jacob singing and he's just not a great singer. Oh, <laughs> and, really? and, and the thing is like Rome it was such a great singer and was such a great facsimile of Bradley that it worked. Jacob not so much. So I'm so yeah, you're right Laura. I am conflicted because obviously it's DNA, it's it's his blood, right? He should be on stage and reap the rewards and pass on his father's legacy, but as a fan, I I I kind of just want the quality. Yeah, well, maybe he'll grow into the grow into the role. I don't know. That's unfortunate. I haven't. Uh, I like the concept, but I haven't actually listened listened to it. So uh, I'm kind of getting an idea of what your feelings on this might be. But uh, you know, Coachella tickets go on sale on Friday. Presale passes. Does it tempt you to uh, get on a plane and go no, to California? No, for th- for three reasons. For three reasons. Number one, it's held in the middle of the desert. Albinos and deserts do not go hand in hand. That would be sunburned city for me. Not going to happen. Bad idea. Number two, Dave Brown and 100,000 people using porta potties and sleeping in tents for three or four days no longer go together. Maybe 15 years ago, but even then it would have been dicey. Number three, Laura, they make all of the show available in real time live for free on YouTube. My sofa and my own private bathroom is a much better deal. Yeah, but you miss the you miss the vibes, Dave. I can um, make my own vibes. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. I was thinking, like, I, I for all the same reasons, except for uh, the part about albinism, I uh, am not necessarily. I think it's mostly actually the fans, like the the other crowd, that would kind of spoil it for me. Uh, but you know, maybe I'll check out the Halifax Jazz Festival <laughs> yeah. this summer. That's a lot more likely than uh, Coachella or any other major festival like that. Yeah, smaller scale works for me, hence why I'm such a big supporter of Ottawa Blues Fest. But even Ottawa Blues Fest, when I went to see Foo Fighters last summer, it was uh, it was pretty jammed up. So uh, even even then, I, I'm, I'm just beginning to lose the capacity to be around tens of thousands of people and uh, utilize porta-potties. Uh, Laura, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thanks, Dave. You too. That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. Uh, Coachella, you know, hey, if it's for you, it's for you. Maybe Bonnaroo's your thing. Maybe Oshiak is your thing, but you probably won't find me there. Coming up after the break, I've got the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at AMIplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Thursday, January the 18th, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Samsung showed off a bunch of new stuff yesterday. Marco Flalo unpacks the unpacked event. And Poor Things is a fantasy dark comedy starring Emma Stone. Michael McNeely stops by for a film review. But the hour begins with the regional news update. Beginning in the territories, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will be in Nunavut for a signing ceremony that transfers resource jurisdiction. Rob Westgate looks ahead. In 2019, Trudeau's then Crown Indigenous Relations Minister, Carolyn Bennett, signed an agreement in principle with Nunavut's then Premier, intended to serve as a guide for negotiating a final agreement. Nunavut was created as its own territory back in 1999, and in 2008, it entered the process of gaining control over its lands and resources by signing a negotiating protocol with former Prime Minister Stephen Harper's Conservative government. Harper appointed negotiators, and the process culminated in that 2019 deal between Nunavut, Canada, and Nunavut Tungavik Incorporated, which represents Inuit treaty rights. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. And over to British Columbia, the B.C. government is investing in their electricity infrastructure. Premier David Eby shares some of the details. Yeah, $36 billion of investment in our, uh, in our power system uh, means a few things. One is it means opening up new uh, economic opportunities for the province. Uh, with our uh, affordable, clean electricity, there are a lot of companies that want to locate here if they can access the kind of power uh, that we can provide. The $36 billion will be spent over 10 years. Over to Ontario, members of the Ontario Provincial Police are starting negotiations for a new contract. OPP Association President John Shusolo says wages are a big issue. Compensation, we are 29th in the province right now. And as president of the OPP Association, that's unacceptable. We cannot be 29th in the province when we are the largest police force police service in Ontario. The province is trying to limit wage increases for public sector employees and the law around that is currently being contested in court. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. into the world of basketball. The Toronto Raptors have traded all-star forward Pascal Siakam to the Indiana Pacers. The Raptors received quite a few pieces in return, but for the sake of simplicity, veteran guard Bruce Brown and three first-round draft picks. Raptors head coach Darko Ryakovic had a ton of praise for Pascal. Pascal is just a pure basketball Junkie. He uh, he's the first one to show up in the gym, uh, the last one to leave. Uh, he uh, he was always coachable, always professional since day uh, day one. Brock, the second the Toronto Raptors traded OG Ananobi a few weeks ago, I told you the rebuild is on. Wait for the Pascal Siakam trade to happen. It happened. Your reaction? My reaction to this at first glance when I saw this was. I was a little underwhelmed. I understand the Bruce Brown. He's a veteran. I, I I get that. But the other two names, I really have no idea 
anything about them and then well that's why that's why i didn't mention them in my reporting right exactly and that's and i really thought that that (laughs) that pascal was worth a little bit more than that um but here we are i struggled dave with draft picks because you can say oh we got you know three first round draft picks but you don't know what you're going to turn those into if you use them as trade pieces that's fine and you and you build them but if you keep them as draft capital which teams obviously need you're running the risk of saying well maybe this draft i can turn this person into something and it's a real risk you're running because you don't know what that person might turn into so i do hope they use it as as some trade pieces to maybe build around what they already have but i was a little underwhelmed at first glance yeah I, i kind of don't know what else you expect to get though for an expiring contract right a losing team a loser team is not going to trade you one of their great first round draft picks and if it's a team that wants to compete for a title they're not going to trade you an elite player so so i don't exactly know what toronto raptors fans want this morning you either keep the player you lose the player in free agency or you get what you get yeah i i i under, like I get that as well. You keep the player and lose the player, which I didn't want. Yeah, but, like, like, like the, the Raptors are the Raptors fan base is so spoiled and so selfish. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I hear you, and I, and I would have been the first to come on here and say I oh, walked away for nothing, and then you'd have said, "Well, you told me you didn't." He yeah, was un- he was underwhelmed. Just like right? they so, did with Fred Van Vliet last year, right? They had an opportunity at last year's trade deadline to trade Fred Van Vliet and they didn't. And then he walked away in free agency, and they got nothing. And they did not want to make that mistake with the OG Ananobi and Pascal Siakam. But, Brock, the problem is here for the Raptors to say, we are in a rebuild. We have traded our two-star players. We're going to build around third-year player Scotty Barnes. We traded for fourth-year player RJ Barrett. We are in the midst of a rebuild. The problem is they don't control their own first-round draft pick this year. That belongs to the San Antonio Spurs. There are some machinations for the Raptors to get that pick, but they're slim to none. So it's not only are you in a rebuild as a team, you actually don't have the most critical resource for the rebuild to start this offseason. Right, and that's that's the the challenge, and I think a lot of – the fans bank on well, you know, Masai Jury and Bobby Webster management have done this before, and they, you know, expedited a rebuild. But when you don't have the resources available to you, it's makes it harder to expedite that rebuild. I believe in those two. I believe that they're going to do the right thing, but it's not going to happen at the pace that Raptor fans want it to happen. But but I wonder at what point that faith goes away. I think if you look at the body of work since the Raptors won the title in 2019, the body of work has been terrible by Bobby Webster and Masai Ujiri. And I say that with love and respect and all this stuff. I think Masai Ujiri is a brilliant basketball mind, but the evidence for the last five years isn't there to me, right? And and, and that matters. The, The reason why they have to go into this rebuild right now is because they mismanaged their team and mismanaged their assets. So, so to say you have faith in a management group is fantastic, but have they earned that faith for the last five years? You're right. It, it, you're right. It is true. There hasn't been much over the last. And as I think about it, as you're speaking this out loud, is that, you know, maybe it was we want to get a championship here and we've been coasting ever since. They're never going to admit that. But I believe in Maasai. If you go on uh, from the old days with the radio show, Tim and Sid, they did a whole song on I Believe in Maasai uh, with a, in relation to 
signing, uh, getting rid of Bargnani from the uh, Raptors many, many moons ago. And I still believe in Masai, but you're right. It is, it is fading as time goes on. Hey, Brock, got to get out of here. Have a great day. You as well. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Reminder of the daily poll. You can find that at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Do you feel like the representation of disability in mass media is improving? Yes or no? And of course, you can chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca or picking up the phone and giving the show a ring, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, Samsung showed off a whole bunch of new equipment yesterday. Marco Flalo of Access Tech Live will unpack Samsung's unpacked event. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Samsung held their annual Galaxy Unpacked event yesterday, showing off some new smartphones with brand new tech on board. Mark Aflalo can tell you more about it. Mark is the co-host of Access Tech Live. Hey, good morning, Mark. Morning, Dave. How are we? Mark, I'm great. I feel like you and I sort of ride this uh, carousel every single event. Uh, <laughs> I, I sort of read a little intro. I say something happened yesterday, and then I always start with this question. So what's new? Well, Dave, yesterday, Samsung, as you said, held a major event. They actually did this in grand style. They took over uh, SAP Center in San Jose uh, and, and invited everybody except for me. Uh, that's okay. It's okay. I'm not I'm I'm okay with it, Dave. Okay. Um, S24, <laughs> S24 Plus, S24 Ultra, brand new phones, same look and feel as last time. Uh, blah 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 blah. They're available to pre-order now. You can get them in a month. They yeah. start at some some, some 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 are some are bigger, some are smaller, some have a little exactly. more processing power. Blah blah blah. Yeah, so this is why I go blah, 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 because honestly, I uh, I think that now at this point, when we come to smartphones, the battle isn't hardware anymore. Everybody has this nice thin, thin slate with a piece of glass in the front and a touch screen. Some might have bigger screens, smaller screens. That's great. Software is really making a big difference between these devices. And yesterday, Samsung pulled what I think probably a good like mile or two ahead of everybody else out there. And simply by their creative and just logical use of AI throughout the entire operating system. And when I say throughout, I'm going to give you the perfect example. And this is actually a Google feature that will come to other Google Android devices called Circle to Search. This is so cool, Dave, and it just so it just makes so much sense. Imagine you're on a screen, you're looking at a picture of Marco Flalo in a beautiful, nice dress. I'm wearing a pair of white sunglasses, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm holding an orange purse. I look lovely, okay? Okay, all right. And, That's uh, a real image you and, painted and, there. I know, I try. Um, and you, you look, oh, you love my sunglasses. You're trying to figure out, oh, where did he get that? Oh, All you do is you press and hold the home button, if there's a home button or a virtual button, and you can instantly just circle, scribble, highlight anything on the screen, and it instantaneously does a search for that visual element and returns results from Google search. So wow. if it's a pair of sunglasses, it'll show you what sunglasses they are. Now this is, it's it's a kind of combo of an old feature, which is Google Lens. 
which let you kind of throw in any picture and try to find a match for it. But it's it's taking it to a whole new perspective using AI that's now built into the processors on board these devices and making it just fluid throughout the entire operating system. So no matter what app you're in, third-party app, Google app, no matter what it is, you want to find something visually. You want, you just literally highlight it and it just goes. It works with text as well. Image, it, it is just such a logical use case for AI that I don't think Apple is going to be able to replicate, at least not a complete ripoff, because this is, you know, tied to Google AI and to yeah. Snapdragon processors. Yeah. And it, it's probably patented. <laughs> well, Mark, that goes back a little bit to what you were exploring last week in regards to the rabbit uh, AI piece of technology yeah. that was that was really about frictionless, right? It's taking steps. Out. Thank it's, like, you. it's like taking steps out of the process, right? If it's simply yeah. a matter of, oh, that's an awesome pair of sunglasses and you circle the sunglasses and then let somebody else do the work for you rather than, okay, take note of that, maybe grab a screenshot, okay, maybe send that out to a couple people, maybe pop into the Google search, sort of try to type in a description of the sunglasses. It's just taking out unnecessary steps in the process. Yeah, and it's giving you a tool, you know, a use of AI in a way that's not what we traditionally associate with it these days, which is the whole chat GPT thing. Yeah. And just just naturally just kind of just throwing it in there. Another example is obviously their AI keyboard, which as you type, no matter what app you're in again, it'll rec it'll ask you what kind of tone you want to write it in and it'll make suggestions as you go. Oh no, again, I don't like just that. Well, well, okay, but fine. If you don't like that, let's put that one aside. How about the voice recorder app? Okay? No, no, Mark, 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 I didn't mean to cut you off. Please, because there, there are people that are going to like that. I just take no, personal pride in how I text. You just ruined it for everybody okay. watching now, okay? <laughs> Yeah, on, okay, so it, it'll recognize and ask you what kind of tone you want to write, whatever it is you're writing, whether it's a text message or an email, and it'll make suggestions along the way. I actually, I was trying something similar out yesterday in Outlook because Microsoft Copilot has a very similar feature, and it, and it said, your tone's a little bit aggressive. You may want to change this <laughs> sentence. And funny enough, it was it was too Samsung about getting devices. So, um, you know, these kind of things are actually helpful in, in, in certain cases. So here's another example, a uh, voice recorder app, okay? We all know what a voice recorder app is. It's great for taking notes. Some people use it. Some people don't. Um, what it's doing now is it's actually able to detect different speakers. So it can actually, when you're done recording a voice note, whether it's a conversation, let's say it's uh, you're recording a lecture and a teacher's there or you're just an interview, for example, with someone, uh, whether you're a doctor and a patient, it will actually be able to decipher that there are multiple people involved and actually say speaker one, speaker two, and actually you know uh, associate it with the right speaker. Oh, wow. Um, and then when you're done, you hit stop, it's going to instantly transcribe everything for you and can instantly create a summary for you as well. Without even asking, you can turn the features on or off. Oh, wow. But again, frictionless, quick things that will definitely help you as you go along your merry way. Same thing in notes. Notes can do the same thing. It'll be able to summarize thing, things, turn things into bullet points. On on the Galaxy devices, you know, you've got the S Pen, so people can scribble notes. Well, it's it's done an incredible job at OCR, optical character recognition, and turning the written word, although I don't think it'll work on my handwriting, uh, into actual text. But it can do bullet points and decipher exactly what you're doing, and even voice notes as well. So that's, I mean... Because as you said, I love the word frictionless uses of AI. <laughs> well, it's your word. Um, it's your word that I'm. It's your word that I'm that I'm stealing. So, so well, therefore, trust me. Watch Access Tech Live later on. <laughs> <I use it laughs> well, that's why. <laughs> see, this is why you and I are a great team. You know, we put our brains together. A couple Montrealers cutting it up. Yeah. Uh, Mark, to to give you a sense of the kind of buzz this unveil got yesterday. 
Noted Apple fanboy, Bruce Baclarian, technical producer, oh. tech, visual technical producer on this show, loves Apple, despises everything else outside the Apple universe. Just got, just got in my ear and said, I would buy one of these phones. Okay, so, so wait, you know what, Bruce? I got another one for you, okay? You are making a phone call. You're in a foreign land. You want to make a reservation. You're in France, let's say. Or let's not use France. Let's say you're in Japan, okay? You want to make a reservation somewhere. Go into settings in Android, download the Japanese language pack or whatever language you want, okay? Before you go, you can do it. Instantly on a phone call in real time, you can turn on translation and the person on the other end will hear you in their native language and you'll hear their translated voice in your native language. What? Yes, and you can you can actually turn off the original sound so you don't even hear the person's real voice so it confuses you. You'll just hear an AI voice translating exactly what they're saying into your language and you can reply in your natural. This is the Star Trek universal communicator, like universal translator, just right there. It's right there baked into it. All thanks to AI on board. And it goes a little bit further because it also gives you the written word on the screen as well. Wow. So imagine the accessibility applications here for deaf and hard of hearing. Wow. Instant translations and communication right there. Again, making things frictionless, not only on the device, but using your device to make the real world frictionless. Mark, I'm naturally resistant. By the way, I wish there was a camera in our control room because apparently apparently, there's a lot of joy going on right now in that control room. I've got one room. more. I've, hit me with it. Okay, so in the Photos app, and this is kind of the logical one, but uh, the Photos app now lets you edit edit the heck out of any photo you take. Obviously, you can adjust the background blur. You can select what things going to be in the foreground, what things are going to be in the background intelligently. But now you can actually, for example, let's say someone's shooting a you know a hoop shooting hoops, and they're they're you get a nice capture of their jump shot, but you you don't like the the composition of the photo. Tap the person, it highlights them, it cuts them out of the image, move them, I don't know, an inch to the right. Not only will it, it seamlessly move the person in the photo, but it will intelligently fill in the background <laughs> with something that makes it look so seamless that that picture never existed in the first place. So, I mean, these are all really smart use cases, and I think we're just scraping the surface. And Samsung has done a brilliant job here at integrating these in a way that just makes sense and will actually help people and set them apart from everybody else who's, who's building features like this. Mark, this is one of the challenges that I've laid out to people whenever they want to bring an AI story to the table. Tell me how this AI is actually going to create change in my life, like yeah. not as some arbitrary concept. What you just did there was the layout of why AI matters. And I think that's something that our industry needs to keep mind of that how does this practically impact people rather than an abstract concept so like well done by samsung and well done yeah. by you so now that you've made the sales pitch let's get <laughs> to the pricing let's say bruce baclarian wants to spend his hard-earned money what are the price points I'm sure if he wants to trade in that iPhone, he'll save a lot of money. Uh, S24, the base starts at 1099. Uh, S24. That's plus, actually which that's is... actually like 1099. Oh, is that U.S. or Canadian? No, it's Canadian. That's Canadian. wow. That's actually not. That's actually not too. for a brand new flagship phone. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. Uh, S24 Plus. Again, the minor differences are like camera resolution and screen sizes. Uh, S24 Plus starts at $1399. And, and the big bad boy, the Ultra, S24 Ultra, which is a new titanium finish and a, a flatter screen. They've gotten rid of the curved edges on the screens. It's now just flat. Um, and that's that's $1799. Um, you know, the biggest challenge here, I think, is going to be how do we convince uh, ourselves, us iPhone users, 
how do we make sense and logical sense of carrying two phones? Yeah, the universe, like, the, yeah, the, the the universe jumping. No, no, like, like that, like that's a real thing, right? As someone who's part of the Android universe, I it yeah. makes it very easy to stay in the non-Apple world. So how does some, how do you actually get someone to jump when they're comfortable with what they've got? But the features you talk about definitely uh, are there. Well, I know, listen, I know the, the real answer to that, and that is take their iPhone, throw it down in the water when you're about 500 miles away, and you can't get a new one. <laughs> But all you have is a S twenty four Ultra waiting for you. Is that Give a, it two days? You'll be used to it. Is that autobi is that autobiographical from your Florida trip? Did That's how I switched from a BlackBerry to an iPhone. I had no choice. My, ah. my BlackBerry died. I was somewhere where I couldn't get a new one, and I had an iPhone that I was playing with. I'm like, oh, let me try uh, this thing. I guess this is I my prime. This is my primary phone now. Uh, Mark, yep. one thought here on the way out the door. One of the trends that came out of CES, according to a couple different major publications, is the explosion of the smart rings, the health tracker rings, and yeah. you talk. Talked about one a little bit last week, but Samsung is in the game as well with their own Galaxy Ring. Yeah, I mean, and we don't really know much about it. We know that when they led up to the tease of it, they just said introducing the Galaxy Ring. They talked a lot about health tracking, sleep apnea tracking, and all the blood oxygen sensors and stuff. So I, I don't expect this to be any different than any of the other rings that are out there, whether it's the you know the the female driven one or the Aura Ring. They all just serve as these devices that are just meant there for body you know health tracking. And I, I can't imagine that the Samsung one's going to be. That much different other than the fact that they'll they'll work it into the operating system and, and their own health and fitness tracking. We really don't know anything about it. That was their big tease at the end. Okay. It, you know, so we'll find out soon. That'll be that'll probably be in the next couple of months. All right. Okay. Fantastic. Hey, Mark, thank you for this. Have a great show today at noon Eastern. Thanks, Dave. That is Mark Aflalo, frictionless Mark Aflalo, talking to you from Montreal. Mark is the host of Access Tech Live. You can find that show Thursdays, noon Eastern time on AMI-tv. You can find The Pulse on AMI-audio on the weekends. The Pulse is kicking off a three-part series on accessible fashion. Joita Gupta told you all about that on Monday. So weekends, 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio and, of course, on all of your favorite podcasting platforms coming up next poor things is a fantasy dark comedy starring emma stone michael mcneely will share his film review but first here is the parasport update with greg westlake hello and welcome back to the parasport update produced in collaboration with the canadian paralympic committee i'm greg westlake we start on the roads of Adelaide, Australia, at the first round of the 2024 UCI Paracycling Road World Cup. The event kicked off with the time trial races, and Canada did not disappoint. Alex Hayward continued his dominance, capturing gold in the men's C3 class. Shelly Goche captured the silver in the women's T1 race, while Nate Clement battled to bronze in the men's T1. Hand cyclist Charles Moreau had a strong showing as well, securing a bronze of his own in the men's H3 time trial. The World Cup in Adelaide wraps later in the week, so we'll have the rest of the results for you on next week's edition of the show. Moving from the blacktop to the ice, Hockey Canada is holding the second edition of Canada's National Para Development League this week in Oakville, Ontario. 31 players from across the country, including five members of Canada's National Women's Para Hockey Team, hit the ice for training sessions and three intra-squad games from the 15th to the 17th. The Para Development League is an effort by Hockey Canada to create more competitive opportunities for para hockey athletes throughout the season and provide an opportunity for next-gen athletes to gain experience alongside national team members. And that's our time for this edition of the Parasport Update, presented by AMI-audio. Check back next week for more news from the world of adaptive sports.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Poor Things is a fantasy dark comedy starring Emma Stone, Willem Dafoe, and Mark Ruffalo. It won two Golden Globes recently, Best Picture, and Best Female Actor for a Motion Picture Musical or Comedy. Let's take a peek into a clip from the trailer of Poor Things. A man enters a whimsical mansion. This is Bella. She's followed by a goose-headed dog. Bella, this is Mr. McCandles. Hello, Bella. She stares at McCandles and shoves his face. She's an experiment. Good evening. Her brain and her body are not quite synchronized. She feeds a goose goat and dog chicken. But she's progressing at an accelerated pace. She twirls. From Yorgos Lanthimos, director of The Favorite and The Lobster. Tell me, where did she come from? I shall. A machine has started. For it is a happy tale. A woman falls off a railing. All right, let's find out what entertainment critic Michael McNeely thought about poor things. Michael's in studio alongside his intervener, Jillian. Hey, good morning, Michael. Good morning. Michael, you believe every year there's a movie that gets a big awards buzz that's just kind of meh? And this one's the one. Let's unpack that. You watched this back in December before it started picking up statues and Golden Globes. What initially drew you to Poor Things? I think it's partly because of what you just said. I like to direct, um, I intuit his other films like um, The Favourite, which gave Olivia Coleman and Emma Stone some awards recognition. I also enjoyed Killing of a Sacred Deer for Barry Keoghan, which we've talked about um, before, and The Lobster. But some of his other films have been hidden miss, like uh, Dark Tooth. I didn't, I didn't like it. So you decide to watch the movie, even though there's been some hit or miss here. How did this film either represent or deviate from some of the creativity of the director? It actually does represent the creativity. So what I've noticed about the director is that he often picks, he picks like a, a premise, a theme, and he sticks with it. So for example, the lobster, you will be turned into an animal if you don't find your romantic partner. So that was interesting. I was like, wow, that's left field, but let's go with it. Um, killing of a sacred deer is a killer that is basically hunting a family for something that they haven't recognized that they didn't want. So that was interesting. And in this film, Emma Stone plays this creature named Bella Baxter, who um, is on a journey to learn about herself by having sex with as many people as she can. And as a result, there's been a little bit of criticism. There is a lot of graphic sex in this movie. How did that take away, or did it serve a purpose from the overall film? So we can talk about a few different things. And first of all, I don't want to seem like a prude. And you did give me chocolate this morning, so I am a little bit... Uh... Well, I didn't give you chocolate this morning. I didn't know there was chocolate around. Yes, apparently uh, staff wanted to oh, defeat great. me. They're hiding that from me. Fantastic. Yes. So, um, I think the first thing you have to do is when you have a sex scene, you need to have a purpose to it. It can't just be gratuitous just for the sake of being gratuitous, because I think there's a lot of other options for that. Um, so, when you have a sex scene, I want to know what your purpose is. 
And if I feel like you're still doing the same purpose after and after and after and after and after and after, after, after for two hours, I'm like, okay, I got the channel idea. I got de it the like first de time. you're desensitized to it. Well, it's not just desensitized, it's more like repetition at nothing. So what I thought this movie was, was that it was just one big dirty joke. It's some that goes on for two hours. I'm saying two hours instead of two hours and a half, because we still have the problematic beginning that we saw a little bit of in the trailer, while she's basically a giant baby in a Victorian outfit. Um, but the challenge with that, now that I'm starting to actually come to terms with it, is it might actually be a representation of people with disabilities, or it might be a representation of those who have mental health challenges or mental illness, or even intellectual or developmental disabilities, because she is a monster. She's been created. She's not a monster. She's been created out of a test tube, and she's still learning. But at the same time, she is— she is an adult. She's a developed woman. So what you see is you see a lot of men wanting to make passes at her, despite her limited vocabulary. And then, eventually, her intellect catches up to the point where she can outsmart those men, but she's still having sex with them like they had sex with her before. So the whole thing is just a little bit—it's a little bit uh, uncomfortable, because, you know, it's— we talk a lot about um, consent and making sure everyone's on the same footing, especially when we covered May, December. So I'm not really in a mood to be laughing and joking about those kinds of things. And so the joke here seems to be, I'm going to have sex with you, I'm going to be better than you, and I'm going to move on from you. And you, as the man, are going to want me, but you can't have me. Even though you tried to have me when I was at an earlier stage in my development. Yeah, I can see how that's uncomfortable. It's, yeah, I can see how that's a pretty uncomfortable concept. Um, yeah. That said, you're talking about an original premise, a director who delivers these premises in a creative way. You're talking about gratuitous sex scenes, which certainly has its appeal to some people. But you found the movie boring. Why? Well, just partly because it just repeats itself in the same way. That she's going to have sex with a man, the man's going to want her, the man can't have her, the man's going to do some stupid things, and then we move on. Sometimes it's the same man. I'll grant you that. It's Mark Ruffalo, who is not a hook that we know. He is just some depraved lawyer that believes that he can own Bella Baxter. And people were laughing at that, but I just don't find it funny. I just. I think there's, there's, a, there's a time and a place where there's. I think people can say, this movie is based on a joke. You didn't get it, so that's your problem. Okay. I will, yeah. I will accept that criticism, but I will say that if your movie is based on a joke, then you understand that some people will not get it, because yeah. some people do not get jokes. That's true. There are a lot of people in this world who have no humor. And art is subjective, hence this is getting Awards buzz. It's winning awards. Forget buzz. It's winning awards. And Michael, I'll tell you, this is how I'm feel. This is how I felt last year about the Banshees of Inishnurin, the the Irish movie that was, um, in my opinion, utterly boring and totally useless and a waste of my time. And then it started winning Golden Globes and getting Oscar nominations, and I was stunned. So why do you think, in this case, Poor Things is getting buzz, winning awards, but you're totally out on it? What would you like me to cut my finger off? 
because I can do that, because that's what happened in Pants of in the shoeing. <laughs> but it happened five times, so I get, you know, I get what you're saying. All right, first of all, let's think about the history of such scenes in film. Typically, it's been a woman taking her clothes off Halle Berry, and yep. being subjected to scrutiny by, I'm going to guess, 50, 50 cameramen in a womb. Probably the director and a bunch of perverted producers, like Harvey Weinstein. Um, so, it's good for women to start to reclaim that space, even though it's been a male-dominated space. Um, I think that is partly why I'm getting recognition here, is because, because Emma Stone, she talked about how comfortable she was on set. She talked about the willingness that she was to engage in these set scenes. Um, and like you said, you know, like me said, she is doing one over on the men in the, in the movie, so that's good. It's a good proto-feminist message, I guess. Um, I think that's partly why it would get some recognition in some parts, because I do agree with the idea that Emma Stone is brave. And you know what? I'm not taking I'm not taking away from anyone's performance here. It's just the storyline could have used a bit more work. So, um, for example, I know that Guillermo del Toro is doing a Frankenstein movie. I'm very interested in that because I saw an exhibit that he did on Frankenstein here in Toronto, um, and this this movie is kind of like a Frankenstein story. It's about a monster, in quotation marks, um, that's been created, a life form that's been created, and trying to experience the world on their own terms. Mm. But I think if you follow Frankenstein, um, the story there is actually rich and very compelling, because Frankenstein's creature, this is the big debate, is it Frankenstein or Frankenstein's creature? It's Frankenstein's creature, because Frankenstein was the scientist. But Frankenstein's creature um, learns a lot. And one of my favorite stories about Frankenstein's creature was that um, he befriended a little girl, and they were best friends for maybe three or four hours. They did everything together. They played together. But unfortunately, um, she drowned because he pushed her too hard. He didn't know his own strength. And we've seen that in lots of superhero stories as well. Uh, but Frankenstein's creature basically drowns the little girl, and she dies. But that's a story that has, you know, it has high stakes, it has emotional impact, it has character development all in one. And thankfully, there's no sex involved. So I think this this movie is just um, just doing the same thing too many times. Yeah, repetition, that's fair. <laughs> Probably why I didn't like Banshees of Inishnaren. Went on too long, I was bored. Michael, thank you for this. Thank you for having me. And if I thought there was a lost opportunity here, we could have lots of things here that I could have pushed off. Just like they do in the trailer. She's like a cat at the beginning. That part was interesting. I wanted okay. to see how many thumbs she would break. Well, thank you for not breaking anything in my studio. I appreciate it. That's Michael McNeely, entertainment critic with a review of Poor Things. Coming up after the break, the city of Las Vegas is changing policies around their pedestrian bridges. So you'll find out uh, our reaction to that idea. One of my favorite cities changing things up. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Don't forget, Access Tech Live is coming your way at noon Eastern time on AMI-television. That's about one hour and 46 minutes. Oh, well, not even one hour and 16 minutes away. I swear to you, I am good at math. I just didn't quite put it together right there. Not, not good at math on the fly. Not good at math on the fly. And then later in the afternoon, Kelly and Ramya hit the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern time. And Ramya Amuthan can give you a taste of what's coming up this afternoon. Hey, good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. Yes, Thursday lineup includes Mary Mamalidi of KitchenConfession.com. She comes on weekly to talk food with us. And today she's going to go through the trends of 2024, all the different food trends. So looking forward to that. She does this pretty much every January. And also we have Curious Minds with Christine Malik. She's going to talk about the history and use of irrigation systems. So basically mm. it's just a free-for-all topic choice roulette of whatever Chris is into this month. So we talked a lot of AI in the last few months. And so, so now, it's, now it's watering plants, <laughs> watering yeah. plants and crops. Legit, legit, yeah. I wonder if she'll bring in some kind of um, Be My AI uh, photo description as well that's been really fun with her and we're gonna flip through quirky stories on what in the world this is with grant hardy so uh, looking forward to those articles and stories as well lots of the regular gang stopping by very good 2 p.m eastern time on ami tv another edition of kelly and ramya alex Smythe, you've got a story here out of las vegas and uh, some new pedestrian rules yeah, Dave, it all has to do around the pedestrian bridges in the city. So Las Vegas has passed a law banning folks from stopping on those pedestrian bridges. And Ed Donahue has the details. People are now banned from standing or stopping on bridges. Violate the ordinance and you could face up to six months in jail or a $1,000 fine. Atar Hasabula with the American Civil Liberties Union says this is a violation of First Amendment rights. If you are up there taking a picture, if you tie your shoelace, if you need a break to catch your air for a couple minutes, you stop to protest. You stop to engage in sharing your faith. UNLV professor William Souza says disorder has increased along the strip. Fights, um, public intoxication, uh, public drug activity, suspicious persons. Hasabula says people are being told it's dangerous enough that people can't stop along the bridges. But it's not dangerous enough to make sure there's a permanent police presence up there. The county says this is all about a smoother flow of pedestrian traffic. I'm Ed Donahue. And so this story, this law kind of seems to me like a, an overreaction to a problem that they're facing that's going to predominantly punish tourists and visitors who come to the city. A know, Alex, Alex, mind, I need to interrupt yeah. you because I don't think Ed Donahue laid it out particularly well. What's the problem? Well, they're saying that there's too many people on these in these sections on these pedestrian ways. They're cracking down. That there's there's fights, there's drug use, there's uh, public intoxication. So they're trying to rid public intoxication kind of in Las Vegas. Well, yeah, and this God. is what I'm I'm trying to get my point at. That you know, Las Vegas has always touted itself as Sin City. Sin City, come you know you uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, this is kind of sounds like people are embracing what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and now. Las Vegas is saying, hey, no, we need to uh, put an end to this. We need to stop people from spending time on these pedestrian bridges, being drunk, high, what have you, getting into fights. And so I, I'm kind of curious what you guys' initial reaction to this, this move is. Ramya, we'll start with you on this one. 
Yeah, I'm not sure if it's necessarily an overreaction, but I I do think that there are obviously challenges. Um, I, from a relatability note, I think of just public transportation in general, right? Like you look, you're stuck in a bus, a local transit for TTC for me, um, and fights break out or people start screaming at each other or get engaged in um, all kinds of verbal or physical violence and you start to think like this is not okay you know and how do we deal with this so potentially bridges um, pedestrian bridges feel a little bit like that but I agree with you in the sense that is this the right way of dealing with it because who's really like you're pushing off the tourists right you're pushing off the people who like even just in this clip you heard the examples of tying your shoelaces and i'm thinking wow are, are we really taking it to that level that you know nobody's stopping or allowed to stop for any given reason at all um and then the other question is is this just a las vegas problem I, you know like not just a pedestrian bridge problem so i really think the way and this is with love dead donahue i think he did a really bad job explaining this story and i think that when you think about this policy it also doesn't address what they're talking about because as you heard from the civil liberties association there is going to be no police presence on the pedestrian walkways mm -hmm. so hey you can't stop on the pedestrian walkways but there's nobody to enforce that Right. So yeah. so yeah. like like you can't do the policy and not enforce the policy. But here's what this story is actually about. It's not about public intoxication or people tying their shoes or overcrowding or fights. This goes back to the Grand Prix race in Las Vegas in November when people, instead of paying hundreds of dollars for seats or tables at nightclubs and bars along the racetrack, figured out, hey, I can watch the race from these pedestrian walkways. Oh, and F1 threw a fit. Formula One threw a total fit and put up huge fences and huge uh, curtains and blockades so people couldn't watch the race from the pedestrian bridges. People, of course, are smart and used pocket knives and exacto knives and cut holes in the fabric and watched the race anyway, and they couldn't get people to move off the bridges. So this is being framed as a public safety issue, it's a money issue. And I think the fact that Ed Donahue didn't identify that in the report was some really lazy journalism. Well, I, I also think too, it's on, on a broader scale. The, this is a public space and, and you're basically policing the fact that you're not letting people in the public stop in a public space for whatever reason. Like where else is, is this really kind of the same policy that you'd have? You can't stop in a park. God forbid you, you stop and uh, sit down on a bench in a public park. Like that's how mm -hmm. I also view this kind of rationale, this this law and what it's basically framed as. So you you really have to like look at, yes, there's these, these examples. Okay, there, let's say there are, are fights, you know, leaving aside public intoxication, things like that. I think that happens in, in many places. But like if it's a, a center that people are fighting beyond just the Grand Prix issue, because I think that, uh, Dave, you're absolutely correct in identifying that because that was a huge thing that's a money and, and uh generating thing and f1 is mad they want to get as maximize the return on investment and las vegas is kind of uh, working with them because they want to keep getting those uh formula one races in las vegas at the same time so you you have that relationship but i think yeah viewing it as as beyond what are the rights within public spaces but to be able to be in a public space i i think is even so core to what is at issue here it's like you 
This is a public space for people. You gotta let people be there. Have either of you guys been to Las Vegas? Yeah. I have not. So, so Ramya, I, I think from experience you remember that like these public, these these overpass uh, pedestrian pathways are to get people across the street, right? They're, they are, yeah. they're sort of supposed to be treated as a crosswalk, not as a resting place. So I think I think that yeah. is maybe where I extend some empathy to, to this idea here, that these are not supposed to be hangout spots. These are, these are supposed to be replacing crosswalks. There's most places in the core of the Las Vegas Strip that you actually cannot cross the street at ground level. So maybe yeah. maybe that's where my empathy gets extended here from a city planning point of view. These are not supposed to be hangout spots. Yeah, but then, as you said, what happened that has made it so bad, these hangouts, quote, um, that they've now decided that this policy needs to be implemented. So you're saying that's the F1 yeah, situation. Yeah, right? I, think, I think the F1 becomes sort of the jumping off point, but then there's sort of yeah. the city design point. There's also the reality that in Las Vegas, um, there are a lot of public spaces where you can just go chill and like nobody's going to give you any trouble. But I also wonder if, if I'm to take the public safety argument at, at face value, it is one of the few non-jurisdictional places in Las Vegas. Because inside casinos and hotels and public places, there typically tends to be a ton of private security, Ramya. Interesting. That's a really good point. I, I just think that, you know, your point about you could just go hang out wherever. There are a lot of spots. Um, they're not as cool as the bridges, right? And <laughs> the bridges are cool. The bridges are cool. Yeah, they're very selfie yeah. friendly. Exactly. And that's why I'm going back to the tourist point, specifically tourism, because that's what Las Vegas is. And these bridges, uh, I guess, account for that. But, you know, you don't necessarily you're not preaching to the locals here. Like we're not talking about the locals hanging out there and unless we're we're talking about uh what do they say like a religious expression and all this other stuff yeah, religious yeah. expression yeah prayer groups prayer groups uh, crossing between <laughs> the flamingo and the bellagio you know like critical time to uh, get uh, your get your ser get your sermon out there alex uh, why no vegas for you you're like you've, you're old enough you, sh you should have made your way down there by now I know it's oftentimes for me the the appeal would never be to go to a casino. I'm I'm not a casino guy as for the most part, and I mean that is really at the core for for Vegas. There's tons else to do, and those are the things that kind of excite me, if anything. But doing the actual casinos is never really been an interest to me. I mean, we have casinos in and around here. I've gone in a few times, you know, I'll drop, you know. 20, oh, 30, 40 dollars. Our and, casinos, and our casinos aren't as good as their casinos. Nothing. Yeah, but it's yeah. still a casino day. Nah, nah. I, free, I, dr I like free drinks, of... free drinks. You can smke inside. Like, come on. Yeah, it's well, a, a, I don't smoke, but B, it's also too, I don't like the idea of just losing my money constantly. Like, that's why, like, even when I do go to a casino, I'm, I'm maybe spending $50 maximum and I'm trying to come out even. And then, you know, if I get an hour out of that, hey, you know, I, I, I did what I wanted to do. I don't find it enjoyable. So for mm -hmm. me to go to Vegas, it has to be like wrapped around some of these other events. Maybe go check out a football game. So go see some shows, maybe do that zip line across the strip. That at least seems interesting to me. The sphere? the new Madison Square Garden sphere they have out there yeah. that looks like super dope that has plus size friendly mm. seating to revisit something from earlier in the week. Uh, Ramya, I love Vegas. I'm deliberately, I deliberately avoid it uh, because unless your finances are real clean, you should not be spending time in Las Vegas, i.e. I now have a mortgage and therefore I need to be extra conscious on where my money Sorry, goes. It was you. much different when I was a renter. Vegas was a ton more appealing. Uh, you, would you go back? Are you someone who would revisit Vegas? 
because I'm definitely someone who will make my way down there. I'm putting squirreling some money aside to go all out for a couple weeks or a week. I was going to say, I swear you've gone to Vegas enough for all of us, but um, that's just because I only only three times, only three times, and each time was delightful. I would have never guessed that. I would have guessed upward of ten times or so. It comes up so much on the show. But anyway, (laughs) I've only gone once. And I had a terrible experience, oh, not gonna lie. Oh. Was Mostly because of the money. I felt like it was an incredible scam staying at these resorts. I went for the um, NFB, the National Federation for the Blind Conference that they have there. It was good on certain levels because I learned a lot and met a lot of people. But my goodness, the amount of money I had to spend for a, a week in Vegas was just absolutely ridiculous. I would never do it that way again. But then I don't know now if there's another way to do Vegas. Yeah, there is. There is. Like Vegas Vegas requires a little bit of guidance on how to find value for your money and how to pick your spots and how to get your compensations mm-hmm. and how to offset the uh, hundreds of dollars you might lose at the three-card poker table at the Flamingo at four <laughs> in the morning. Mm-hmm. But a uh, different story for, uh, for a different show. I think Vegas is cool. I've always said it's a choose-your-own-adventure kind of town. You like food? Yeah. There's a bazillion great restaurants. You like musicals and entertainment and concerts and that kind of stuff? There there are a million shows to go to. You like uh, gambling, there's that. You like sports, there's sports books. And if you want to do a bunch of other kitschy tourist stuff, there's that. There's even great stuff like hiking, Grand Canyon, outdoorsy stuff, helicopter rides. It is truly a choose-your-own-adventure kind of vacation. All right, thank you for this, guys. Alex, thank you for bringing that topic to the table. And Ramya, you have a nice day as well. That's all the time there is for the show today until tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time when the news panel kicks off with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Actually, it kind of relates to the Vegas thing. Montreal has plans to turn part of its downtown into a 24-hour party zone. That'll come up on the panel. So until then, at 9 a.m. Eastern time, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.